Welcome to Reformed Rakes, a historical romance podcast that can speak to the spirits. My name is Beth, and I'm on Book Talk under the name Beth Heyman Reads. I'm Emma. I'm a law librarian writing about justice and romance on the Substack Restorative Romance, and I'm also on Book Talk under the name M Kick. My name is Chels. I'm the writer of The Loose Cravat, which is a romance newsletter on Substack, a book collector, and a book talker under the username Chels underscore ebooks. Today, we're diving into The Ruin of Evangeline Jones by Julia Bennett. Published in 2020, The Ruin of Evangeline Jones is a Victorian romance between Evangeline, a fraudulent medium, and the Duke of Harcastle, who's made it his mission to unmask her. What starts as a typical game of cat and mouse quickly spirals into something much more complicated and compelling. The Duke's obsession with unmasking Evangeline, or Evie, is really just an obsession with Evie herself, a firmly entrenched longing that puts them both in jeopardy. Evie's occupation has her pretending to speak to the past, to the spirits of those that left us behind, but it's a figure in Alex's real-life past that haunts the relationship. When I first read Evangeline Jones, I was struck by a few unconventional choices that Bennett makes in the narrative, which were actually very cathartic to read. The book explores wealth and power, and the often messy moral calculus people have to perform to survive without. It begins, as so many stories do nowadays, with a duke. Bennett's opening line addresses publishing's obsession with dukes, Yet her treatment of the Duke of Harcastle shows a thoughtful exploration of class and how that title can weigh on a person. His title provides a genuine hurdle he and Evie will have to clear in order to be together. Alex and Evie never did exactly what we expected them to do in reaction to each other, but Bennett manages to write a believable love story because all of Alex and Evie's actions are backed up by in-depth character work. So, as always, Chels put us on to this book that we all now love. <laughs> yeah, uh, I very recently read it for the first time. This may be the quickest reread I've ever done because I, I think I read it this year, maybe in January for the first time. And I was, I, I think I read it in maybe one sitting, <laughs> first time I read it. Yeah, I think I read it uh, 2021 was my first time. I picked it up because I love a medium story. And what was really cool about this book is that it shifts so quickly. So you think you're reading one thing, but you're really reading something else. Yeah, when I did a review of this book on TikTok, I was sure to clarify that, yes, it is about debunking this medium, but it is so much more than that. And I was in reaction to some reviews I had read where people were like, oh, I wanted it to be like more about the debunking the medium. And I thought, I'm like, that's not even... Like, it's interesting, but if you just stay in that setup, it's not it's not as interesting as, like, what Alex and Evie end up doing, because you don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah, and that's such a weird criticism, too, because you get a lot of, like, really meaty, medium scenes in this book. Like, I know. Like, so thorough. Like, that's... Maybe it's because the curtain got gets pulled, or it's there's never is a curtain. You're, you're kind of in in on it already. Anyway, we shouldn't talk about the plot too much because people have no idea what we're talking about. (laughs) On that note, Chels will give a quick plot summary first, and then we'll talk about more about mediums, spiritualism in Victorian times, photography, terrible dads, and a lot more. Alex, the Duke of Harcastle, is seated at a table in a dirty establishment, waiting for the appearance of famed spiritualist and medium Evangeline Jones. Alex has a makeshift vocation of unmasking fraudulent mediums, and he showed up to see Evangeline in action, to gather evidence that will later reveal her to be duplicitous. He's accompanied by the Lennoxes, who he describes as fervent believers. They're convinced that Evie is the real deal. But Alex has a special interest in Evie. He has two photographs of her, 
one as the formidable medium she has now fashioned herself as, and the other is of a more salacious nature. The latter picture is of Evie's former identity, a young woman named Sally Hansen, posing astride a wooden chair. It's an alluring picture, a young woman with her breasts bared, smiling invitingly, so divorced from the other image of the starchy and impenetrable medium. Since he discovered the titillating picture, Alex has been carrying the photograph on his person. When the seance begins, the Lennoxes ask Evie to summon their lost relative, Bertie. Evangeline answers that Bertie cannot come, because he is now with God. Alex is surprised by this. Surely a medium would want to keep his clients on the hook. If she tells them they've crossed over, she cuts off a source of income. Mrs. Lennox then suggests that Evie see what the spirits have to say to Alex. After he agrees to try it, Evangeline startles everyone by answering as his father, the former Duke, in a deep, cold voice. Alex is enraged, but he doesn't leave the room. Evangeline then communicates with spirits through slate writing, and the note, Boy, stop wasting time, appears. Alex runs out of the room, nauseated and enraged at what is yet another jab at his relationship with his father. He vows to get revenge on Evangeline. After Alex leaves, we learn that Evie is working under a mysterious figure that she calls the captain. Evangeline is concerned by Alex's interest in her, and convinced that he's going to take her down. The captain won't listen to her concerns, instead saying that they should capitalize off of her success with the Duke instead of going into hiding. When we next meet Alex, he's speaking with his cousin Ellis about the burden of inheriting the dukedom. Alex's father, the former Duke, left him deeply in debt, and Alex will have to marry an heiress in order to course correct. After his conversation with Ellis, Alex has an epiphany about how Evangeline executed the slate trick to imitate his father. He leaves to confront her, and finds out the room below the seance was occupied by an actress named Margaret Carmichael. He sets out to find Margaret, hoping that it will lead him to Evie. When he arrives at Margaret's lodgings, he finds Evie instead. She's Margaret's roommate. She's surprised and disconcerted to find him in her rooms, and he takes advantage of her brief loss of poise to confront her. He tells her what she already knew, that he intends to expose her. Then he surprises her by telling her that he wants to spend a week in her company. If he cannot unmask her during that time, he'll leave her be. If he can, he'll pay her 500 pounds to compensate for her loss of income, with the expectation that she'll retire forever. Evangeline agrees to his terms. Soon after, Alex picks Evie up in his carriage so they can begin their bargain. Evie takes him to a place called Eastman's Dry Plates, where the captain, going by the name Nightingale, takes their pictures to see if spirits will show up in the images. Alex notes that spirit photography is an astute choice on Evie's part, as they won't get the results until later, mitigating the risk that Alex will detect fraud. After they're leaving, the fumes from the photography session cause Evie to go into a coughing fit. Alex offers her a drink from his hip flask, and she's surprised to discover that it contains water. Alex is sober because he finds alcohol addictive. He doesn't admit that to Evie, although he knows she's probably picked up on his teetotalism. The process of removing the flask from his pocket dislodged the partially nude photograph of Evie that Alex had been carrying around with him, much to his horror. Evie is angry to see it, thinking that Alex was going to use it to publicly shame her. Mortified, Alex admits to Evie that he was carrying it around because he likes it. Evie forces Alex to admit that he likes the way that she looks, then she makes him confess that he touches himself while looking at it, fantasizing about her. In an act of both retribution and desire, Evie demands that he reenact the performance in front of her, right there in the carriage. It's a brief, hot moment that leaves Evie feeling powerful, and Alex finally realizing just how overmatched he is by Evie. Before she leaves the carriage, they agree to meet the next day at a seance. 
Before the seance, Evie confronts the captain about the picture from her past life. He was angry when he discovered she took it at the time and allegedly destroyed all copies of it. She knows he's involved in getting the picture in front of Alex, but she doesn't know how or why. At the seance of Lord and Lady Stein, Evie is continuously encroached upon by the lecherous Lord Stein. To punish him, she calls forth the spirit of his mother, who proceeds to chastise him for being an unfaithful husband. Stein is grief-stricken, bursting into tears. This performance solidifies to Alex how capable Evie is, and how he got off quite easy in her early performance of his father. Their next meetup is at a theater party in Soho. Evie performs again, this time manifesting a glowing green spirit from her hands that the crowd calls ectoplasm. Alex recognizes it as oil of phosphorus, a dangerously flammable substance. Enraged at her careless behavior, he confronts her after the show and forcibly removes it from her hands, all while lecturing her. As they leave the theater, they kiss and start to go in for more. Alex wants Evie to say that she wants him, that she wants this, but Evie is unable to do it. Alex retreats and calls a cab. Later, he offers her the role of his mistress, and Evie declines, thinking that he'll tire of her. The next day, Evie confronts the captain again, asking why he would risk exposure from Alex when he has so much to lose. The captain confesses that he's expecting a big payout from Alex, and Evie deduces that the captain's reasoning is personal, that it's not entirely driven by logic. She's come to care for Alex, and she's worried about him, so she goes to warn him and end the wager. She tells him that the captain is fixated on him and wants to hurt him. Alex is annoyed that the captain has seemingly ruined any chance he had with Evie, as now he feels responsible for her safety and can't make moves on her while she's under his protection. He takes her to his apartments to hide out, and they come up with a plan to end the charade. They'll stage a seance with the captain and other witnesses present, where Alex will elaborately expose it as a fraud. To do this, they enlist Alex's half-sister Helen, who's from a theatrical background. She'll take the form of a spirit rising from the floor, and Alex will break with custom and pull the curtain on Evie's machinations, exposing that she is controlling the scene. When Helen starts the performance, they're all shocked by the captain's reaction upon seeing her. He becomes enraged and tries to grab her before yelling at the Duke and Evie that he'll destroy them. After Helen is ushered to safety by her husband, Alex and Evie try to piece together what caused the captain's outsized reaction. Evie remembers that he was in love with an actress in the past, a redheaded beauty who looked remarkably like Helen. This woman was Helen's mother, the mistress of the former duke, who is also Alex's deceased father. Turns out, the captain has more than just held a candle for Helen's mother all these years. He felt entitled to her, and even after she died, he carried a deep-seated rage toward the duke, a man he felt she wasted her affections on. The former duke is dead, and so now Alex... His son must pay. Evie and Alex decide that Evie must disappear so she can be safe from the captain, while Alex figures out how to take care of the problem. They sleep together, and they're both overwhelmed with their feelings for each other. It seems like an impossible situation. Alex is going to be the Duke, and to keep the dukedom surviving, he will need to marry an heiress. Evie is not opposed to being Alex's mistress, but she can't stomach the prospect of seeing him with his future wife. Hoping to avoid painful goodbyes, Evie decides to leave in the middle of the night during a storm, and a thoroughly distraught Alex chases after her. While attempting to follow Evie's path on the cliffs, he's confronted by the captain, who initiates a brawl, ending with Alex tumbling over the side of the cliff. Later, Evie learns from the newspapers that Alex has fallen to his death. She's overcome with grief, filled with remorse that she never told him that she loved him and how strong her feelings were. Later, she's accosted by a man, surprised to find that it's a clean-shaven Alex. 
After his brawl with the captain, who mysteriously disappeared, Alex staged his own death with the help of his half-sister Helen. It's the perfect solution. Alex no longer has to be troubled by the dukedom, his death brings insurance money to the estate, and he is now free to create a new life with Evie. He tells Evie that if anyone can help him disappear, it's her. Evie tells Alex her real name, Hannah, and together they depart on their new, unburdened life. So let's talk about the first seance scene where Alex meets Evangeline for the first time. So Alex has been carrying Evie's picture around for a time, so the fascination slash obsession has already started with a first meet. But let's talk about the actual first meeting at the seance with the Lennoxes. Alex is trying to reconcile the parts of Evie that he knows. The partially nude photograph of her that he finds so alluring, and the staid, foreboding medium that is manipulating people out of their money. Evie shocks him in two different ways. First, she refuses to let the Lennoxes speak with their relative Bertie and keep them on the hook for future sessions. Second, she scares and taunts Alex by pretending to call forth the spirit of his abusive father. The first is a kindness. The second is most definitely an act of cruelty. Why do you think Evie made these decisions? So, yes, she's unkind to Alex. At the same time, though, he is a threat to her livelihood. I'd say she's using restrained tactics to scare him off. I'm glad this stays a sore spot between them. Well, I think Evie was justified. It still hurts Alex, and I see why it's still hard for him. We'll talk later about Alex's garbage father, but Evie's pretty consistent here on how she approaches people. Lord Stein, another person we'll talk about, harasses her during a seance, and Alex notices she dials it, dials up the scare tactics for Lord Stein even more because he's genuinely a piece of trash. And it's not only about Evie, because Lady Stein hugs Evie afterwards and thanks her. So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely think a theme of this book is how interpersonal harm intersects with systemic harm and weighing how to react on a personal basis to these scales. By all measures, Alex is more powerful than Evie. But from the jump, we can see that she can still hurt him. What does she owe him in terms of restoration from this harm that he takes so personally? And what does he owe her as a duke and this direct threat to her livelihood? It's kind of funny after she calls forth his father and he storms out thinking like, oh, I'm really going to get her now. And I'm kind of like, well, weren't you going to get her before? Right. (laughs) What has changed? Now this personal harm is personal. (laughs) (laughs) It's worse now. Um. But yeah, I do kind of want to mention the Lennoxes. So something that Alex knows, and he actually gets angry about it in the moment when he sees that she's doing this because he he makes it feel like he's more complicit in the seance is when she says that Bertie, their relative, is with God. And so she refused to like do a voice or call him forward, mm-hmm. uh, which would kind of keep them on the hook and bring them back for more and more seances. I'm kind of interested, why do you, do you guys have any thoughts on like why this made Alex so mad? I think he wants to see her as like a truly terrible person, like a charlatan. She's taking people's money and this demonstrates she's thoughtful in how she approaches people's grief because obviously they're very sad, you know, someone has died and she's not going to just take them for every penny that they have. You learn later in the book that she and Captain argue about this, that she won't just like keep calling forth someone's dead relative because that's what he wants to do so it shows a thoughtfulness on evie's part that she's like she doesn't want to take more than she needs yeah and i think alex maybe is also having a reaction to the lennox's grief that has this like tidy ending that they're so sad about birdie 
And once someone's able to tell them he's at peace, they are able to also move on. Alex, there's no there's no tidy solution to Alex's grief. It's like he has grief for his father, but he also has grief for his life with his father. So there, even if someone, a medium, was willing to lie to Alex about his father being at peace, that would not have the same reaction to Alex. So I think as a, a grieving son and a grieving son of an abusive father, mm-hmm. um, I think he also has jealousy of the Lennox's neatness that Evie can afford them. That's a really great point. Um, I'll... The reason that Alex gives for getting into spiritualism was initially, I think, to fill the hole that alcohol had left in his life. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, which is also kind of so closely tied to his feelings with his father, because he has memories of his father mocking him uh, for his drinking. And he got into spiritualism looking for that. And instead, he kind of was able to see through the curtain, he was able to see that, oh, this isn't real. This isn't something that's going to help me. And so his new mission became debunking mediums. He just had to have something to fill that. And I think that he probably on some level is, is as kind of seemed like what you were alluding to, Emma, like he felt a little bit jealous that the Lennox get this like kind of like neat, tidy story and this like comfortable grief uh, that he doesn't necessarily get. And I think he also mentions that to Evie when he's like, I I initially started debunking them because I thought I could find a real one. And he's like been since disavowed of that, that he, mm-hmm. he's initially seeking them because he wants the sort of like, he's interested in spiritualism and solace. And But by the time he's with Evie, he's convinced that they're all charlatans. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I think it also annoys him that he's like, he wants to be able to categorize her and he can't do it. Mm-hmm. It's the whole book. Yeah. <laughs> Stay in this box, please. Moving on to our next point, uh, I'm going to give a little bit of a backstory of mediums in Victorian England. Uh, So spiritualism was incredibly popular in Victorian England. There was a proliferation of mediums, a rising number of women who weren't from the highest social classes who could adopt this authoritative voice and insert themselves into the public sphere. I think a very surface level reading of this phenomena would paint it as feminist, a sort of... Victorian girl bossery, where women pulled notice by force. According to Alex Owen in the book The Darkened Room, Women, Power, and Spiritualism in the Lake Victorian England, mediumship, at least in theory, was stripped of all associations with mysticism and of an elite caste. It was firmly held that any individual, male or female, rich or poor, could become the conduit for a dialogue with the spirits. Women flourished beneath this overarching rubric. But Owen acknowledges that while spiritualism can circumvent rigid 19th century gender norms, it, quote, did so without mounting a direct attack on the status quo. Women could achieve notoriety and influence through spiritualism, but the spectacle could often be reduced to the salacious. In a New Yorker article, Why Did So Many Victorians Try to Speak with the Dead?, Casey Sepp recounts an incident with Mina Crandon, a well-known medium whose work was infamously debunked by Houdini where she produced ectoplasm from her mouth and from between her legs, often while naked. Evangeline produces ectoplasm from her hands in front of the audience, and while the event itself is less obscene to Victorian sensibilities than what Crandon did, Evangeline's avoidance of the more salacious elements of spectacle doesn't stop her from being sexualized in her role. When she's performing the seance at Lord and Lady Stein's house, Lord Stein openly sexually harasses her by touching her leg and making lewd gestures. Let's talk about the seance at Lord and Lady Stein's house and the way that Evie diffuses this situation. 
Oh, what stood out to you? So in the context of mediums, I think throughout the Victorian period, there's this question of what is art and what is magic and what is science? Similar to the skepticism about photography as an art that we're going to talk about later. Um, I wonder if Bennett is directly alluding to how Sherlock Holmes dies in The Final Problem by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, with the way that Alex falls to his death off a cliff with his enemy. Conan Doyle was one of these Victorian men of letters who was so fascinated by mediums and psychics and seemed to have this earnest desire to prove something was supernatural, taking a good faith approach to debunking that led to his falling out with Hayari Houdini, who insisted that all spiritualists were frauds. Alex in the book seems at first to be taking a more Houdini approach to Evie's performance, particularly at the Steins. That this is lying and this is wrong, but then at the Stein's house party, he sort of sees more of Evie's motivation of why she's doing it and what power she gains from her seances. At the party, Evie is not giving solace in the way that Alex finds hurtful, like the couple in the first seance. She's using it as a weapon against Lord Stein's lechery and harming of women. And this seems to be something that Alex understands more directly. I like the reference to Holmes, and I also picked up on that when I was reading it. There is an element of mystery here, even though we're in on the debunking, the medium part of the story. Bennett sets up questions for Alex to answer because he's unsure of how Evie does things. But then the real mystery shows up and it's why is the captain targeting Alex? So this kind of gets me to uh, another point, which is that I think it's fascinating that debunking a fraudulent medium storyline crops up again and again in historical romance. Uh, the Wicked Deeds of Daniel McKenzie by Jennifer Ashley, and Proof by Seduction by Courtney Ballon, to name a few. Exposing mediums was a pastime for a lot of prominent men during the Victorian period. In Kep's New Yorker article, she cites Anne Broad's Radical Spirits, which framed mediumship as laying the groundwork for feminist political activism, namely that having more women speaking in public would lead them to being seen as equal. Such a framing helps explain why spiritualism became so ridiculed, and why its opponents sought to discredit its female leaders most vigorously. Heterosexual historical romances often explore gender politics and power imbalances because there are certain signifiers that we associate with historical romance that make power discrepancies obvious. Think of a young woman's ruined reputation as being a consequence for engaging in a fraction of the bad behavior that a rake could get away with unscathed. The aristocrat exposes the medium is such an interesting way to explore that dynamic while grounding the story in a specific time and place. While the heroes of these books have less malicious motives for revealing the heroine's fraud than their, some of their real-life counterparts, the consequences for the women, on an individual level, their loss of income and lifestyle, would be dire. They don't have an easy way to claw their way back from that level of notoriety. But how would a silver-spooned aristocrat intuitively know that? And this gets us into Evie's choice to be a medium. There's a great scene where Alex is taking Evie to task for being a medium, which is an occupation that definitely has ethical problems when you're an acknowledged fraud. Alex's interest in debunking mediums didn't start that way. He was initially turning to spiritualism to try to fill his life with meaning and find peace that was denied him by his father and his tumultuous upbringing. When he realized that the mediums he was seeking out were most certainly charlatans, he became incensed and then put all his energy into destroying their occupations. It's definitely personal for him, but he can't quite wrap his brain around how Evie, someone he is truly coming to like and respect, can bring herself to do this for a living. He says that she should be able to find another line of work that's more respectable. Evie lets him have it. What would a duke know about how regular people scrape by day to day? The reality is that even people with quote, respectable jobs, your seamstress, your factory worker, are a hair's breadth away from destitution. Sex work is supplementary income for a lot of these people, and Evie points this out as value neutral. 
Her best friend, the actress Margaret, is a sex worker, but this is no doubt an occupation that Alex would see as being as far from respectable as humanly possible. But who cares about finding a respectable occupation when you need to eat? Uh, Yeah, 10,000 points to Evie for this conversation. You're basically cheering as she lays out her limited employment opportunities. Another thing I wanted to touch on is that she mentions women may rely on the men in their community who have better access to opportunities. But what do women do when they don't have that? Well, some women had fathers, brothers, uncles. Those men might not go to bat for them or support them. Like, no wonder she became a medium and tried to mitigate falsehoods when she could. It's a job that gives her enough money, and it's not hard labor, where you're working for a meager amount of money, and it's unlikely you're going to advance far employment-wise. Yeah, and Alex definitely has this fantasy about just going to get a job. Like he sees, I presumably sees women in sort of like a service industry. I think he mentions like working in a shop as like a viable thing for a woman who is not relying on independently wealthy men in her life to do. But it's like, how is Evie going to get that job without a reference? And it's like he has no idea of like the mechanics of sort of this growing middle class that's coming out of the Victorian period is still very reliant on network and connections, which is kind of ironic because the network and connections and sort of the the credit that he has with his creditors as Duke is a big source of anxiety for him. That's the, he's worried about selling parts of the, the dukedom off and his, um, his assets because it's going to make the creditors anxious. And so he's also relying on this network of trust that people place into him that he, he doesn't seem to understand that that network scales down to the middle class as well and the working class. And he doesn't conceptualize that Evie doesn't have that network because of her relationship with the captain and sort of where she she comes from. There's that great scene where Alex confronts the captain and he has this thought like, I can act really intense because how often do people meet a Duke? Mm-hmm. And so we can kind of see that one way where see that his being is so unique, but he doesn't quite really get what it's like for other people like he doesn't get that he's in such a such a unique position like truly unimaginable wealth and power even as a broke duke um (laughs) that's a funny thing to say broke duke uh he yeah he doesn't quite get that but he he can only see it one way yeah (laughs) he can only see it one way and i love how frequently bennett will reference him in his own mind, acknowledging, like, I'm a duke. They've never met a duke before. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And he yeah. trains on that. Like, he knows that he has power. So, I yeah, I love that part of the book. Every time he acknowledged it, I'm like, yes, this is an unusual thing happening, that this innkeeper is now meeting a duke. Like, there's only what? How many? And that's so funny, too, with knowing Alex's personality, because he doesn't Reed is foreboding to me, Mm-mm, but yeah. he's like, I'm scaring everybody just by being in the room. <laughs> Maybe that's why he doesn't have to be foreboding. He just knows this title is going to do the work for him. Exactly. And I think because he hated his dad so much, he, like he does not respect the dukedom. Mm-hmm. Like he does not respect being a duke. So it's, some dukes in historical romance like wield it like a weapon because they're like, I'm never going to live up to my father, the duke. <laughs> um, but Alex is like, I hated that guy. <laughs> Why would I want to be like him? Let's talk about the picture of Evangeline that Alex has been carrying around, because it comes back into the narrative at different points. First to show just how far gone Alex is from the get-go, and then later we see it was deliberately planted. What do you see as the significance of the picture? 
I think we all love the photograph. Alex carrying it before he even meets Evie is so hot and just sets up their dynamics from the jump. He's smitten and doesn't have words for it. She's confused by his devotion to the image, but takes control of it with a plum. Photography is this technology that doesn't always come up in historical romance. The invention of it came in the 1820s, but popular access to photographs like the one that Alex carries of Evie really came in the second half of the century with the invention of dry plates by George Eastman in 1884. So firmly outside the time frame of Regency romance and a lot of Victorian ones as well. This book is set in 1888. Evie also uses photography as her medium scheme, with the captain posing as a spirit photographer Nightingale, but I do mainly want to talk about the almost nude photograph of Evie as an art object. Photography in its first century was almost relegated to a documentary science, like the way that it's used in The Countess Conspiracy by Courtney Milan. In these dismissals, there's the sense that there is no mark making as a union between the artist's eye, brain, and hand. This is an oversimplistic understanding of the variety of ways that photographs are staged, but literary theorist Roland Barthes and Camera Lucida suggest that something about this lack of total authorial intent in the final image creates rather than detracts from an artistic value. Barthes calls the element within a photograph that has a system of meaning for, for photographer and viewer the studium. This exists in any referential work of art. But in photography, there's another element, the punctum. The punctum in Bart's translated words is, the element which rises from the scene shoots out of it like an arrow and pierces me. The word comes from the Latin word meaning to prick. The punctum has to be accidental, unknown until the image is produced, and it has to be personal to the viewer, not the photographer or the subject. In the context of the photograph of Evie that Alex finds so, so compelling, I thought Evie's nonplus description of the experience of the sitting was so interesting. Quote, the money he'd offer her to pose had been more than she'd ever earned before from a single afternoon's work, and she'd been tempted by the prospect of earnings of her own. Evie thinks about it in terms of her economics. The sitting is not really an artistic enterprise for her at all. Alex, when describing the photo to himself, acknowledges the artifice designed by the photographer. He understands the system of reference of Evie's undone hair and astride a chair pose, intending to signal to the viewer, quote, she'd recently engaged in frenetic, amorous activity. But the thing that captures Alex's attention is Evie's gaze, something the photographer can't control, and even Evie doesn't seem to understand her power as related to Alex. It is a feature of the image without referent. It has no meaning inherent in it except its power over this viewer. Part of the power of the punctum is that this is a relationship between viewer and art without an intermediary or a medium. I think this is fascinating in the context of Alex and Evie's relationship, where she is first literally a medium to other worlds, and then they are holding each other at a distance for most of the book. There's also another party to the photograph, the captain. So he plans the photo for Alex to discover, which eventually leads to Alex's obsession with Evie. The captain's motivations were to put Evie on Alex's radar so that he can begin his revenge plot. But there's no guarantee that Alex will see anything noteworthy with the photograph. He could easily find it titillating but still use it as Evie feared to immediately discredit her. The captain originally punished Evie for taking the photo because having that image of her didn't serve him. He needed her to appear otherworldly and not earthy in order to make money as a medium. I feel like I should comment on just Emma's explanation was just so succinct. I'm like, yep, that's that's a really good point. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I think. I'm like, I have nothing to add to that except thumbs that's up. What I've, that's what I'm bringing <laughs> to the podcast. Good job, Emma. Thank you for letting me talk about semiotics. Again. I know. Can we do this for every episode, actually? When are we going to talk about black silk? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> 
So the photography scene in Black Silk. <laughs> I know, right? Um, yeah, this photo. And then there's another photo. Doesn't the captain, like when they do the spirit, uh, spirit photography, doesn't he send a photo to Alex afterwards? Yeah, he slips in a photo of Evie uh, into them, mm. and Alex is like, you motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, because by that point, the captain had caught on that Alex is, like, gone. <laughs> yeah. Though it also tips the captain's hand, mm-hmm. because Alex is thinking, like, is Evie sending me this photo? And he's like, actually, I think it was probably Nightingale. So it's like, who is Nightingale to Evie? Like, the... So far, Alex had not connected the captain and Nightingale as, like, the people that hold power over Evie. So slipping the photo of Evie is very, like, I think indicative of the captain's... Like, he always thinks he has the upper hand, but he almost never does because he's so, like, hyper-fixated on Alex. Like, we think Alex is obsessed with Evie, but actually the captain is even more obsessed with Alex and, like, this revenge plot. I just really want to know... Something that you kind of never find out in the book, unless I'm wrong, but I don't think you do, is what exactly the captain was planning on doing. I feel like he just <laughs> was doing a lot of different things, and then like whatever worked out, he would just kind of go off that. So that's why I feel like the plan doesn't feel like much of a plan. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. It's just a man who's very angry, which I kind of like, <laughs> actually. Like I think sometimes like the villain will be like, how did you make this happen? Like, how would you know this person would react like this? And then you could enact the next part of your plan. Right. Because he he doesn't know, like initially, uh, we get the benefit of seeing mm-hmm. how intensely Alex is. <laughs> <laughs> really likes Alex is, Evie. Oh my gosh. He really likes Evie. And he's, there's like, I think it's like the third chapter. He's like doing something and he has her picture propped up and he's talking to her picture. He calls her a saucy minx. <laughs> <laughs> and he thinks about like, he's like, I'm going to have the paint, the photograph like done as a painting. So like, I'll look at her instead of my dead dad who I hate. And he's like, maybe that's too much. <laughs> oh my God. I love Alex so much. <laughs> and Evie, like, she really doesn't have it. Like, she knows, like, when she sees the picture, she's like, oh, okay. <laughs> but, like, but like, she doesn't really know. No. No. She doesn't really know. <laughs> but, yeah, as far as kind of, like, not knowing what exactly the captain is going to do with revenge, yeah, you're, you're totally right. Like, I, he, he's kind of, like, He's just kind of like going off vibes. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, Alex likes really likes Evie. All right, Plan B. Mm-hmm. So I do think he's like a very clever man, and he is also very angry. But mm-hmm. like, I I also I think there's something that he was gonna do. I just don't know what it is. It might have just been to push Alex off a cliff. Seriously, it was like I think Evie references that scripture. Is it from Numbers where it's like you visit the sins of the father on the children? So that's like what tips her off. Like, hey, this might be be his plan. He had me memorize the scripture. <laughs> A little yeah. case Very subtle. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one character that looms large over the story, but it's not actually present within it, is Alex's father, the former Duke of Harcastle. Alex's father had already died before the book starts, but he still takes up a lot of space in Alex's more dismal thoughts. He's a pretty evil man. He had incarcerated Alex's half-sister Helen in an asylum for a decade and tormented Alex through insults and emotional abuse during his childhood, dismissing his beloved nanny without character and locking him in a closet for a full day. 
Alex tells Evie that he feels as though he shouldn't have a right to complain about his father's treatment of him, that so many people had it much worse. After all, his father never hit him, and Alex still grew up in a life of extreme privilege and wealth. I always think of the outsiders in situations like this, when Cherry tells Ponyboy that things are rough all over. Like, an initial reading of this line feels a bit patronizing. How can she compare the lives of the greasers who have to cut it on the streets to that of the silver spoon soches? But even though it's a fraught and messy comparison, there's an element of truth to it. Suffering isn't finite, and anyone can experience it. Evie's life is demonstrably harder than Alex's. She's had to endure things that, as an aristocrat, he wouldn't be able to comprehend. And yet that doesn't mean that Alex, with all the trappings of wealth, was fully shielded from trauma. He's surprised when Evie protects him from the captain, noting that nobody had ever thought he needed that before. So, in a way, Alex's wealth and station worked to further isolate him. There's also Tolstoy's opener to Anna Karenina. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Like, where is this more true than romance novels? I think with a cross-class romance, it would be easy enough for Alex's anguish to come from his attraction to Evie. Even his divestment from the ducal role could just be this big romantic gesture so they can be together realistically. But he's really not suited for the role of the duke. Not just because of his personality or his love for Evie, but because the dukedom is imbibed with all these feelings about his father and his abuse that Ellis, his cousin, just sort of gets to skip. Right? Shout out to Ellis and can't wait for your book. (laughs) Charles has laid out what a bad man Alex's father was, and I love how Bennett goes headlong into that. Alex mentions at the beginning of the book that he had shown some interest in the dukedom, knowing one day he'd be running things, but his father takes this as Alex eagerly awaiting for his death. So his father makes it so unbearable for Alex that he stops trying. Alex doesn't remember when he stopped caring. And this is quoting from the book. And if he were honest, didn't he feel contempt for both to this day? Now he has to save the estate, not having really learned how to care for it. It's interesting to me, though, is he doesn't want to be the one who drops the ball. Like, in all the line of the dukes, the weight of his title and responsibility still guides his actions. So I think that segues into uh, yeah. Alex giving the next... up the Duke Dome. <laughs> yeah, it does pretty neatly. Yeah. Um, so this book ends in a way that a lot of Eat the Rich historicals fall short of, with Alex actually giving up the aristocracy so he can forge a new life with Evie. This makes a lot of sense for his character, as both Beth and Emma have mentioned, because he not only got no pleasure out of being a Duke, but he saw it as a familial burden. In the middle of the book, he tells Evie, you see, the actual Duke himself is nothing. Each one, each generation, is merely a link in the chain. None of this is truly mine. I'm its guardian, and so I must marry a suitable and suitably rich woman to make a little lord who will grow up and become another link in the chain. Alex leaving the dukedom behind so he can live with Evie is him breaking the chain, saying, no, it actually doesn't make sense for me to live like this any longer. Yes, obviously, I agree. I think it makes a lot more sense that Alex gives up his dukedom because the duke is so high socially. I don't know what we have to do to loosen publishing's chokehold on dukes, but it's often a pretty wide gulf between the duke character and their intended romantic partner. Julia Bennett makes it work here where it's an actual impediment to their future. It makes way more sense to have Alex fake his death and for them to start over somewhere new. And Bennett does lay the groundwork for Alex to be dead in the law's eyes. I know we do and do not care about historical accuracy at the same time. I'm approaching it as, here's something to explore in fiction more. Because the ramifications of marrying outside of your class are pretty great, 
I uh, remember reading this a little while ago, but there's this diarist, Nellie Wheaton. She lived from 1776 to 1849. In 1810, she wrote to her friend about her wealthy employer who had married his dairymaid, and then that dairymaid's new family despised her. And then it goes on to be, she comments being like, oh, it's kind of is terrible when people marry up, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because I bet that was like a huge source of strife for the dairymaid and not necessarily like that new family after four weeks of learning to love her personality came around. I'm sure that never happened. So, and I'm fine with, um, I don't, I don't want to make it seem like I'm not fine with stories where someone like marries up to the Duke's level. Like I said, historical accuracy is fine. <laughs> like I don't, I don't need it in my fiction. But I think it would be more interesting if authors would explore that more often or try and solve it in, in different ways. I guess. Yeah, they generally assume that marrying up is the impediment that the the that the hero's family won't take in, like the Duke's family won't take in the heroine. And sometimes the heroine or the, whoever's the lower class will sort of protest a little bit and say, like, I'm not made for your world. But a big enough grand gesture will solve that problem. Like, we will ma- we will forge ourselves in, in the aristocracy yeah. together. But, like, with the dairymaid, it's like, yeah, like, maybe maybe she likes her life and, like, the industry that she has in, in like, the middle class. It seems like all these dukes don't like being dukes. Why would anyone want to be a duchess? <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. I think I've mentioned this before, but there's something that I kind of look for in historicals that have class difference romance because it it has echoes in like queer relationships where you are queer, you enter into a relationship, and then you have to deal with like both parties' families, like Mm -hmm. in a way that heterosexual couples don't necessarily need to as often. Uh, So there's uh, there is that point where it's like, okay, I'm choosing to be in this relationship, and therefore I'm choosing to let my family go. And there's a lot of historicals, heterosexual historicals, that like kind of skirt making that choice. Mm -hmm. And I would like to see that dealt with more often. I'm not saying that it has to be dealt with every time. Like this always has to be the conflict. Um, I know that sometimes uh, it's just really fun to read about a governess and a duke. And I do love those stories. But I would like something... I would like something different and I would like it more often, especially with regarding to families and like sort of messy family dynamics. So this kind of reminds me a bit of the Blackshear series by Cecilia Grant, which we just talked about the other week, which are another sort of you can't have your cake and eat it too type of historicals. So in the Blackshears, making a bad marriage like Will does when he marries Lydia, who's a courtesan, has real social consequences. There was never really a choice for Will. He was always going to pick Lydia, but once he does, he has a new reality. He's not welcome into the places that he used to be, and members of his family aren't speaking with him. So he had that like actual sacrifice in order to be with Lydia, and even though that wasn't neatly wrapped up by the end of their book, it's still a happily ever after. Yeah, and I think also connected to the Blackshears is how these characters are pushed to bad acts. So Martha Russell, one of the Blackshear sisters, attempts fraud. Will and Lydia do card counting. And Evie here in this book with the medium practice. These are all lies to some extent. And if we have to be black and white about it, bad things to do. But none of these novels outright expect the reader to condemn any of these characters, even if people are harmed by these bad acts. But the bigger, badder act really is the system that Alex isn't sure how to remove himself from. Uh, so, And sometimes romance deals with that by making the system a backdrop and focusing on the personal, 
or making the system more receptive to progress than we know it to be. The Blackshears, as non-aristocrats, can weather the storm if they stick together. But Alex is a duke, so Bennett has to go big with it. I would just like to create a bingo sheet for all the times we will mention Cecilia Grant in each of our episodes. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason we started I with know, her. right? We need, we need to be able to reference and people to know what we're referencing. <laughs> Not to derail the conversation. Oh, yeah, no. System, <laughs> system bad. <laughs> That's how we should end every... I know, right? Um, so we kind of talked about this earlier, but the conflict in a lot of historical romance novels is around the potential social consequences for a disadvantageous match. Oftentimes, those social consequences don't come to fruition. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I was thinking about this maybe on like the other side of things. I'm thinking about... So it's, we have the aristocracy on one side, another sort of common theme is like heroin takes up with crime lord. And it's like, those are some social consequences that I feel like are not necessarily played out every time. Mostly because it's exciting when the the heroine sort of leaves society. But I think that, like, I, I guess I'm thinking about like One Night is Never Enough by Anne Mallory. That's one where like a very starchy woman goes off with someone who's like has a crime a crime lord but it's that her family is so terrible to her that we we were rooting for her to leave and so it has to you sort of have to push something to the extreme whether it's the consequence or the not caring about consequences and i love that book but i think maybe threading the needle of dealing with consequences and and also like taking the big leap is harder where i i think that all the examples i'm thinking of where they don't deal with consequences it's because so you were rooting for someone to say like, oh, I don't care. But the that Alex, I mean, I guess Alex has to do that too. He's basically saying like, I don't care. But he doesn't totally sever his relationship with his sister. He's severing his relationship with like the title. I don't know if that made no, sense. No, it does. But. I feel like, um, I don't know if this is exactly what you're meaning, but it's like you can still approach a situation and be like, okay, I'm okay with the consequences that are going to happen like I know and I don't care but they're still going to happen and it's still hard even if you logically thought thought it through like I think emotionally especially with like Alex he's severing his ties with the dukedom but still I'm pretending to be dead like that still has to be (laughs) tricky to manage in the future like how is he gonna maintain a relationship with Helen and there's like people he cares about like that he will literally yeah, never see. Yeah. see like well how is ellis gonna deal with this like i think to pull off the fraud ellis has to be kept in the dark like is he gonna continue to be kept oh, in the dark yeah. for his whole book or is there gonna be a reveal like are we ever gonna see evie and alex again now Han- evie is now hannah but so i don't know i love that ellis is like barely in this book and yet everyone is like <laughs> we need more <laughs> i love the setup oh my goodness it's just i mean his wife is in the book even less it's like she's, she's a bohemian that's all we know right yeah she's like yeah she's she's artsy and he's like can't be bothered i just love yeah. there are she's artsy and they're estranged and i'm like i'm obsessed I know, the marriage of convenience <laughs> yeah she's artsy he's uptight i'm like this is the perfect setup for me this is like a best book to the t yeah so it has to be like it has to be like a second chance romance right oh like, i love you know i love second yeah, chance romance. yeah no it's the best <laughs> give me all of those <laughs> books please <laughs> It's gonna be so good. I just want um, her to be like obsessed with her and him being like so restrained, like people restraining their emotions. Oh, I love it. It's yeah, I'm I'm really looking. And I wonder to if she. Well, I guess now that he's Duke, he needs a wife. Yes, like, he needs that's what to, I like... think the setup is gonna be. Like oh. you have a Duchess now, so you have to tell her like, by the way, you're a Duchess. Oh, by the way, like, we kind of need to like have children. <laughs> she has to learn to Duchess. <laughs> yes, and then has to do her. Um, what do they call it when you have to have sex for? 
the family they're like it's your and it's like no well it's your like responsible something responsibility oh because she has to have Maybe an I'm heir making that up yeah you have to have you have to have an heir right or else you'll break the chain I but know. it's like they don't know the chain was broken and soldered together they don't know that in secret alex is just like removing his link and like piecing the two back together yes <laughs> i think this is a good point to end because we're talking about her next (laughs) book and how excited we are to read it everyone should read the ruin of evangeline jones it will ruin you i'm so sorry to julia bennett if this gets to you uh obviously we're very excited for ellis's book and then Thank you so much for listening to Reformed Rakes. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find bonus content on our Patreon at patreon.com slash reformedrakes. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram for show updates. The username for both is at reformedrakes. Thank you again for listening, and we will see you next time.